it's funny that you say that because uh, I remember a certain tweet that a certain you uh, oh, put no. out there recently that said anytime. Anytime I get in a group of three or more people, I immediately try, try to bully them. That was the first thing you said. That's not what I said. What did you That's say? Let me, said. Get, let me get it. Let me get the actual quote here. But that was the effect, as I recall. I said. I said. Uh, I mean, acting like the bad boy of the group. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you do have a, a lifetime supply of toothpicks on your person at all times. I'm the bad boy. <laughs> That's right. There's no, there's no, you you know who's great bad boy? Yeah, tell me. Actually. Tell me. Uh, In the 2003's Love Actually. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Bill Nye. I loved him. I loved him in this movie. There's so much to love. Yeah. Everyone loves him. The whole point is love, actually. (laughs) Thank Uh, thank you, Abe. Yeah. Thank you. I'm nailing it. You know, you want to hear something weird? I do. Well, it's not that weird. Okay. Uh, so maybe you can take it back. I don't know. You don't <laughs> want to listen to this. <laughs> well, that you know uh, no. if I wanted to Something hear it after I've heard <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> Before you knew any information about it. Look, I'm just going to talk at you now. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, when I searched Love Actually in Google, okay, I was immediately shown Showtimes. Oh, it's still playing. It's still playing in a lot of theaters. Yeah, it, yeah people, this one kind of has stuck around a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's In fact, uh, it's 2.36 right now. It's about 30 miles away in Glendora. I could see catch the 3 p.m. showing of Love Actually right <laughs> Which now. Which you would like to do, and this podcast is preventing you from doing. Mm-hmm. But I can't because I have to work. <laughs> uh, no, I I just uh, thought that was weird. Like, that's... Yeah. It kind of show. I just wanted to set the stage for... It's crazy how this 2003... I had never seen it before. Yeah. Yeah. It became famous because I think, you know, everyone like MTV Awards probably I think spoofed, you know, like the the the, the cards. Like there's parts of this movie that I was like, yes, I uh, cultural osmosis. Right. But for the most part, I I didn't know ex- the the cast is stacked. <laughs> like the oh, it's just insanity. Everybody's this is an insane in this. Yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's and I also like don't a, watch uh, romance films that often, so I'm not your target audience. Me, me needs, me needs. But I'm, but I am trying to incorporate more of those into director piece, so I'm not only doing thrillers, you know. Oh, that's right. And horror that's films. Right. Uh, By the way, everybody, this is Director Peace Theater. I'm Abe Everson. <laughs> that's Adam McAnzer. Uh, we, di- we we direct movies, and we yeah, want to talk. We want to talk to you. At, talk at you about yeah. them. Yeah. To, anyway, right. today Adam brought a, a like some thoughts on. Love actually, I sure did. Uh, it's coincidental that we happen to be doing a podcast because Abe and I often will flip on the microphones and do a Zoom call and just, just hang yeah. out and see if anything and just happens. record. Yeah, just you know? if anything. Happens. You never know. You never know. You really need to, you know, contentize your relationships. That's the one thing I've learned about life. Make sure I tell you can everybody it. to record everything you do. Absolutely. Yeah, that'll never hurt you. And that'll and never upload come back. It to Upload it to YouTube. Yeah, that's right. That's how you get an audience. And having an audience is what makes it worth living. Hi. I don't mm. normally watch Christmas movies, Abe. I don't I, normally watch them. Why not? Uh, because I, I honestly, the movie, the movie lover in me doesn't like them. Um, the movie lover mm. in me doesn't like them because I think if I can pick one genre of film that is the least rewarding dramatically, it would be... Christmas movies, uh, because I feel the that's 
the forced the forced conclusion, the forced sentiment of it looming throughout yeah. every time. You're like, like, I bet everyone's gonna end up fine. Yeah. You know, like, right, exactly. Like, that's kind of, like, one of the things that makes a Christmas movie what it is. Like, if I had to, like, sum up what the key parts of the genre are, I would say, like, this is the place where we put all of our cultural uh, moral parables and values. Like, they Mm -hmm. go here more than any other place. Uh, Yeah, it's it's fucking enough with that shit. (laughs) Well, I don't think that stuff's bad. I think it's good. But, like... Because I because we don't have like really sharper or unique deviations from those that often, it always mm. sort of you know uh, descends into family is good, uh, that sometimes good miracles happen, uh, and that uh, commercialism, like commer- like just being a, a materialist and a commercialist, is not good. But like it's acceptable as long as you're sane about it, as long as you don't go insane. Yeah, uh, just everything in balance. Right. You Meaning, know yes. Moderation and family first. You know, like like the kind of thing you'd hear uh, Michael say on Arrested Development. You know what I mean? Like, it, Walk that, the path that really of neoliberal- <laughs> neoliberalism, you normies. <laughs> exactly, and right? also, Yeah, fucking who, every, everyone matters, even the fucking reindeer with red noses. Frankly, that reindeer should be taken out and shot. <laughs> I like what you're doing here. I like it. Yeah, I don't even know what my bit is. Full asshole on this. You're the asshole on this podcast. I'm the. There's no asshole on this podcast. Mm. That's a different podcast. You're just calling me an asshole, which is fine because I am. Yeah, it's the time. No, but you're absolutely right. It's uh, there's an expectation and there's a tradition. uh, All words that define Christmas. Yeah, I mean exactly. In fact, uh, like Christmas movies are also like designed to be the most inclusive uh genre as well which means more than Except any other non-believers well no but <laughs> i see but i don't think christmas movies are at all religious i think a religious they're, movie they're. actually takes it out of the christmas movie i mean they absolutely are you know? just to be technical but i know what you mean because they're the 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 impetus behind them is to become sentimental for sentiment's sake exactly right so it's a religion yeah. in that respect and it's a religion of culture Right, like it's it's definitely like a religion of like the you know again family White values. Dominic. Yeah, 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 a little bit, uh, though not exclusively that, but a little bit. Of course, of um, course. Yeah. I, but like more than anything else, they're trying to get everybody to be able to come see it. You know what I mean? So like these, that means they have to skew and include things that that appeal to older audiences. Like yeah. so, you'll get a lot of nostalgia in every in every Christmas movie. Um, You'll hear music that nobody really listens to anymore, but they but movies have it around. Mm-hmm. So like, it, and it's now like that's what Christmas music is because it's in these Christmas movies. Mm-hmm. You know, like Bing Crosby, who I by the way I like his Christmas album, but like I don't know anybody who's like listening to that during Christmas time. But it's in every Christmas movie. You know what I mean? It's in. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and if you own it and you love it, man, good for you. I'm not saying that's bad, but I am saying. Probably yeah. it was movies that got you to buy it. <laughs> you know, probably, right? Um, another thing that you'll see a lot in Christmas movies is like actors who we haven't seen in a while. We're, like we're bringing back the old hits, you know? Yeah, um, like Bing Crosby. Right, right, exactly, right? I got his old bones. <laughs> What's he up to? He's dead. Well, let's He's see. He's dead. Jam. No, no, no. But yeah, I know what you mean. There's like right. a... 
And that's one of the themes of this movie. There's right. literally a, a guitar, uh, an old rocker. That's right. Bringing Bill back Nye. the classics, yeah. you know, in a more palatable form. So, like, right. also, I want to acknowledge that in recent years, there's been a lot of counterpoint Christmas movies. Sure. Right. So these are the ones that are like, we're gonna we're gonna focus on the dark part of human heart, right? Not the Ooh. good part. Um, Krampus. Yeah. Right. Krampus. Bad Santa is a pretty famous one. Violent Night, uh, which I haven't mm-hmm. seen, but clearly fits into that genre. Um, and I would say, even though most of these movies pose as like sort of nonconformist, like grumpy type movies, um, they tend to land in the Christmas space by the end. They tend to resolve with the same like morals about what life is about and what's important and stuff, right? Uh, sure. Yeah. There's the Christmas movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in some, I mean, in some ways, they're actually more effective at making the point of a Christmas movie than the schmaltier ones. Like, for instance, I think Bad Santa is a pretty good movie for, like, seeing the value of family. Like, I think it, like it's pretty effective at it's, that story. It's much more of an argument, you know, because it pushes and pulls and expands and right. contrasts, like, point counterpoints. Right. And then... At that, and then the other movies will often just be like Yuletide. Let's get drunk. Everything's <laughs> right. <fine."> right. Shitty <laughs> uncle finally treats you right for a day. Right. Yeah. Uh, like I would say, if there was one true mandate of Christmas in cinema, it's that they must ultimately bow before these, like you know, fairly inoffensive, primal, slightly westernized values. Right. Right. And and uh. This may seem pretentious, and I don't mean to be. I'm just being honest. Like this is why I don't like them. Um, I don't like them because I feel I feel that they soften reality in a way that feels false to me. Um, and as a movie goer, when I go to a movie, I want to be surprised, and I want to and I want to feel tension. And tension means that I want to want something that I'm afraid isn't going to happen. Like that's the best experience in a movie, and none of that can happen in a Christmas movie. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I'm not saying that there aren't exceptions. Of course there are. Um, but in general, you guys have been listening to me for a long time. You know, I'm a thriller guy. I, I prefer intense or sad or yeah. philosophical movies. Um, but I don't like sugar-coated movies. And more than anything else in the world, my mother hates this about me. <laughs> she Man. fucking hates this. Uh, she we hates better it. not get two other guys. Otherwise, I'm going to have competition for the baddest boy. <laughs> No, so like it's, this is how cool. bad it is, Abe. This is how yeah. bad it is. So I I often write stuff that I would want to see, right? Who doesn't, you know? And right. uh, my mom hates everything I write. Like, just hates it. She does not like a sing. She never liked a screenplay I've written. I don't think because wow. she is the ultimate target of a Christmas movie. You know, gotcha. like she wants this sort of softened, you know, uh, moral reality that that christmas movies put on and she's not the only one i would say most people love this on some level that's why that's the ritual of it you know i mean it is the key to entertainment right fundamentally right just like people going out having a good time right. you don't want anything to get in the way of that it's like oh didn't need to think about assault in a really drastic way today right. but i guess here we are <laughs> exactly exactly I, like i don't necessarily need to deep dig deep into the human spirit today you know right. like i just want to yeah. have a good time and like remember why we're all doing all this right and not be it. challenged be reinforced uh and look man i i have no i'm not right for being the way i am i'm just explaining i don't watch christmas movies for this reason so there was a sort of a funny experience when i was like desperately searching for a topic 
to do for this podcast. I like mm-hmm. just sort of chanced upon Love Actually and was like, I remember this being kind of a good movie, and I rewatched it. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, I remember watching it in 2003 and thinking, you know, for a Christmas movie, this is like one of the more poignant, thoughtful explorations of love, right? And and that's a perfect right. topic for Christmas. And, uh, it, you know, because it took things more seriously. It wasn't all happy endings. And I need to let you know, Abe, and I know that you do because you've watched it. Uh, no, it is Christmas crap. It is absolutely Christmas <laughs> yeah, crap. Yeah, baby. Yeah. 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 No, it's, I mean, that's that's what I saw. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it, there's charm in it. Yeah, of and course. And like, it's unique charm for especially that time. Yeah. 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 But it's but still it's, uh... deeply sentimental. Uh, yeah. Right? Scenes will just fizzle out because they'll just be like, and what does that mean? Right. It's Christmas, baby. (laughs) It just becomes like, I remember some people playing some music and it's carols Isn't that how love is? You know? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Like, and like, I would say it's also not even that deep of an exploration of love either. You know, no, which is... it isn't. It just says it's everywhere. In fact, the right. opening monologue. Well, I mean, I don't want to do. No, your, do it. Your, Say your, it because it's important. The, the opening monologue is just a. It's just he, like a monologue on just reminiscing over the idea that sometimes you are sad and sometimes you're happy, and that doesn't change the fact that love is all around us and people are in different you know iterations of love. And right. That's, true and right. that's actually where it got, that says love actually is like everywhere or whatever i forget it what has the audacity to say and again i'm not picking i want you to know i do like the movie still uh-huh. um, i do like it it has the audacity to say like at 9 11 there were more messages of love than hate or fear <laughs> that's right right yeah it drops 9 11 right it drops 9 11 and shows footage of actual people in an airport hugging each other yeah in 2003 you know what I mean? Real. Like, so it's a it's a bold swing. I mean, it was filmed months after you know nine eleven. Right, right. So like they were like this setup is like we're really going for it, and then uh-huh. like the movie itself is uh ex- extremely uh gentle and not not a hard take in any way. Um, and so it's one of the only romance films that I can think of that like. I'm gonna include 9/11. You know, like that's what the screenwriter. I'm gonna did. start with 9/11. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, what? yeah. You my rom com <laughs> from the ashes. <laughs> from the ashes of the World Trade Center springs love. It's one of the only ones I can think of. If you can think of one, put it in the comments. Yeah, baby, that's interaction. Maybe another one. Yeah, that'd be amazing. All right, keep going. Also, keep going. I, I know this is like extremely disrespectful, and forgive me. Uh, uh, an actual rom com. Posed around the be- like life after 9-11 could be mm-hmm. a very funny movie if you write it the right way. <laughs> yeah. Could be amazing. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Anyway, so like this prompted me to to the topic that I want to talk about today, which is yeah. I want to go back and, and revisit this film and ask, how did Richard Curtis trick me into thinking this movie meant something more than it actually hmm. does? Like what are the techniques that he uses as a writer and director to uh, bring up these like seemingly difficult situations and then somehow still sort of slide into schmaltz and make me think, wow, we really did something there. You know, like what, how, what is right. the sleight of hand that he's exploiting, uh, making my heart feels, you know, grow two sizes? 
Okay. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then, yeah, exactly. As you said, people still go back to this movie. So like it's still yeah. culturally relevant in that way. So the title that I hope you end up using, Abe, and I'm definitely pushing you this time to do it, is okay. How Richard Curtis Save, Saved Love Actually from Ruining Christmas. Uh, and I think the first... Wow. Thing, yeah, yeah, I'm going for that. That's right. I'm going for it, Abe. Okay. From, Let's go. It begins with 9-11. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So like, yeah, no, it does. So <laughs> the first thing you have to say about the film is it's actually very ambitious for a Christmas movie in terms of it, the amount of stories it wants to tell. Like it's a pretty and the yeah. and the scope of those stories. Like it's 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 pretty oh, ambitious. It's not like Harry met Sally. It's like let's give you an ensemble, right? And we're gonna some of them are gonna be like three scenes. Some right. gonna be like eight scenes, right? But right. Everybody gets their day in the sun, and they're like like so. And he also like is like we're gonna talk about love specifically. Like we're, this is a meditation, you know, which is right. a thing. You know, if it's not. Being done by Terrence Malick, you rarely even see that in cinema these yeah. days. So, uh, like, that makes it ambitious. And then, like I said earlier, you know, you have the actual footage of people in the airport hugging in 2003. So, like, so it's a pretty gutsy opener, you know? It's it's like, it's, you know what it kind of is like? I'm, I'm ready. It's kind of like, it's kind of like those fucking celebrity videos, mm-hmm. like the Imagine video. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of like... Look, there's some tragedy out there. Right. Let's uh, let's just hunker down and talk about love. Yeah, yeah. Let's all sing together. Right. It, there's a little bit of like, uh, we all we got it's everyone Christmas, together to help. Though, right. You know, Christmas is that for a lot of people. Yeah. Once a year. Yeah. Where yeah. It's like, ah, it's winter time and we have nothing to do and let's talk about the Lord and have a good time. <laughs> You're not wrong. Uh, yeah. So, like, I want to, like, get into some of the substance of the film, if it's been a while since you've seen it. So, like, it tells at least 10 different stories. That's a lot of stories. And a lot of those stories start with a very serious, painful backdrop, right? So, like, Liam Neeson's story with his son begins with he lost his wife. She died very suddenly, and, and like, their life is over. That's the beginning of their story, right? Mm-hmm. Colin Firth's character... Uh, walks in in his second scene on his wife cheating on him, and like with his brother. With his brother, it's like it's pretty fucked, uh, and that like blows up the family and yep. your love. Yeah, life, so we never like, see them again. Everyone is fucked. Yeah, yeah, we never see them again. Alan Rickman's story with Emma Thompson. There are a couple in this movie. Is is literally showing us the process of him having an affair. That is what the yeah. story's about. Um. And I think the most painful one that is like maybe the exception to everything I'm going to say today is uh, Laura Lenny's story. Laura Lenny is in love with this uh, office mate that she has that she's never super had the, hot. He's guy. super hot guy, Carl. Man, he's got it. He is smoking. Hot. That guy is not named Carl. No, I'm sorry. No, that guy. That guy was carved out of a romance novel. You know. Right. Uh, yeah, he's he's gorgeous, and she is trying to work up the courage to ask him out, and. As things start to finally go her way with him, uh, we find out she has a mentally unhealthy, un- mentally unwell, I guess the right term, uh, sibling who like is has been institutionalized and is literally ruining her chance for happiness, like constantly ruining her chance for happiness. And she can't she can't let him alone enough to have her own life, you know. Um, and so those are like pretty grim stories to start with. Uh, yeah. And uh, yep, that's and they're just like they're not all gonna come up the same. They're not most of them are gonna end in like a wedding or like a relationship. Right. 
Some of them are the opposite. Right. Not they um, they to the filmmaker's credit, they don't all have happy endings. Uh or they right. don't all have clear happy endings. Um but I will say that given all this morbidity, it's pretty surprising the film manages to feel pretty buoyant. You know, like it it never seems very heavy very, or bogged down. Most of the scenes are light. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. Uh, and so here's some of the tactics that Richard Curtis is employing to do that. So he's more interested in you connecting to a theme than any one story. The way he organizes the film is more about the theme than any one story. Um, and that's, of course, like a thing that you do in anthology stories anyway, is that you sort of organize how the stories are cut together so that you get a kind of meditation on the larger connection between the stories than any one particular narrative. Uh, and so when we're watching anthology stories in general, we walk away with the, the impression of all the stories summed together more than any one particular thing. And I think he very cleverly, as the writer and director, inserted some extremely absurd love stories to kind of like lift up the emotional balance of the film, right? Like, is it like it sort of leavens the dough, if you know what I mean? So like yeah, yeah, yeah. one of them is there's this English guy named Colin is like, I'm not getting laid over here in England. So I'm going to go to America Unreal. and I will slay in America. And his friend's Unreal like, real art. Yeah. This, and his friend's I like, just this want is a YouTube stupid. video of just those scenes. <laughs> right? It's amazing. Right? Go ahead. Cause then he goes and he bangs like four, women in wisconsin yeah yeah he well so like he thinks he's just gonna walk into any bar in in average america there will be extremely hot women there they will love him because of his accent and he will slay like he'll sleep with everybody and it'll prove him all right he does and that's exactly exactly what happens it's fucking ridiculous immediately walks into a any bar in wisconsin right I don't know if you spent any time in Wisconsin. I have Adam. actually. Uh, never saw a okay. January Jones there. Did not never see her. seen four tens no. in a Wisconsin no. bar. I haven't seen them in L.A. I love this British stereotype of Americans. It's very funny that we're extremely fuckable. <laughs> I like that. I'm like, keep thinking that, Britain. Keep thinking it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. We like it. You know, maybe I should move to yeah. Wisconsin. <laughs> You've convinced me. The Colin arc has convinced me. Yeah, that's correct. So here's another one, right? So that one like really changes the vibe of the movie in general, right? Here's another one. So Bill Nye is a washed up rock star who, for money's sake, is forced to re-record a hit of his from you know decades ago with the word Christmas in it, and uh, his and he like just throws every interview and like literally says this is horseshit. This song sucks. Uh, nobody should listen right. to it. Like he's doing that. It's wonderful. And of it's course, great. and it's funny. It's very funny. And his manager's super bummed because his manager needs him to make money. And he, of course, it gets him all the way to the top, a thing that would not happen, but it gets him all the way to the top of the Christmas charts. And right. he ends up <laughs> learning lessons that are meaningful from that process, which is even yeah. more absurd <laughs> than like it's the a, process it's, Yeah, it's very absurd and very positive and everything works out. Yeah. And he's... He he can just be who he is, right. and everyone loves him for right. it. Uh, right, which it's very charming. It though. is. It's, it's like very what charming. you're doing is you're basically saying here are the charmingest most stories. That's right. So, yeah. and I also think like this is like Richard Curtis very ca- very craftily sort of dodging a bullet that could be aimed at the movie 
I think mm-hmm. his character, Bill Nye's character, uh, knowing that Christmas merchandise and materialism is is bullshit and cynical, like he's cynical about it, sort of makes the movie feel like it's not schmaltzy, right? Like we like we know that, you know what I mean? Because we're we have a, an arc about that, and mm-hmm. uh, they're like making fun of it, so like we think, well, at least they're not doing it's that. Clever. Yeah, it's clever. Yeah, it's very clever, Sneaky. and he's getting away with it. Sneaky, you know. Well, a little bit wolf in uh, sheep's clothes. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Right. It's a little bit like hanging a lampshade on it, really. Um, yeah. I think my favorite of these arcs, because it's so outrageous, is Martin Freeman and Joanna Page's love story. Absolutely. Uh, they meet and then basically decide to be to go on a date while being stand-ins on a porn set, and they literally have to pantomime sexual acts in the nude while like just trying to get to know each other. And every cut yeah. to it is funny. Every single cut to it is funny. Um, what they're having them because they're like, oh, their dicks and vages are in each other's face, yeah. and they're ha- they're talking about traffic. It's yeah, horrendous. It's absolutely horrendous, but in a great way. And like, it's a, it's also a thing that like I'm almost certain doesn't happen on porn films. <laughs> like, why would they need their their nude stand-ins they, to pantomime the act? Stand-ins, but like, like it's it, the way they presented the production yeah. quality yeah. of like, yeah. it, it made you think, oh, this is a huge movie right. at first. Because there's like a... There's an there's AD like, and there's grips well, there's and there's one AC and, and yeah. two AC. Right. And yeah, the, like they, they have a focus puller right. and stuff. <laughs> There's no fucking need for like I've never seen. Maybe there there's is. porn that's there's high, that's high end, porn. but I but like True. the job they're doing is not. I don't think it's a real job in porn. Like I don't yeah. mean that there are definitely people who they use for lighting and stand in on high end porn, but they don't need them to pantomime sex acts. I don't think. I can't imagine. I don't why think that would. I don't happen. think they need to thrust it exactly. at each other exactly and like. Yeah, and it's just the way it's because it's funny to see them do it's that. It's super That's funny. All. And it and again, it's absurd and it again it kind of like puts like a splash of absurdity over the entire thing. Right. Right? So like now I'm not as upset that Alan Rickman is going to have an uh, affair with his assistant, you know? And I mentioned this on right. director piece because the writer and director is structuring this film in such a way to modulate the emotional experience you're having with all these different stories, right? Um Another way that he's doing that is he's using what I'll call story rhythms to make the experience actually feel uniform, right? So what I mean by that, and and this is, by the way, common in anthology stories, is that he'll cut together a series of key moments of like loss and catharsis to happen sort of at the same time so that we feel like the entire film is actually having the same experience and that it's actually transcended mm. the complexities into a peak, like a poignant statement about the whole. Right. So like, yeah. here's a couple examples of that. Um, the best one is the airport at the end. Right. And I don't mean the very end. I mean, the airport where Liam Neeson's son finally chases after the girl that he likes that we've been waiting to meet the whole movie. Um, yeah, it's wild. Well, and everything sort of collapses into that moment. And it's very much, uh, as I'll say later, it's very much not about, what he's about to do. It's about what does it mean? What he's doing? What does it mean? Um, and I'll explain what I mean by that later. Uh, I would say the Christmas party is another like key touchstone where a lot of stories sort of collapse into that moment. And we get the, the trope of loneliness, longing, things aren't working out new, like surprising things happen, like left turns happen. Mm. The thing that a Christmas party is famous for, you know, they do all those things. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the beats and the stories happen there around that time. Um, 
and uh, of course, he also will structure events around uh, key holiday tent poles, right? So, like, the best one is the kids' Christmas pageant. Um, the kids' Christmas, yeah, it reveals everyone knows each other. Everybody knows each other. A lot of the big moments and big reveals of the stories, like the biggest twists, all happen in like a five minute sequence right it's the, there. The uh, Morris Paris car crash, baby. exactly. Right, exactly. That's what it is, right? So you get like Hugh Grant finally gets to kiss his assistant, uh, who I believe it's Naomi. Her name flew right. I think it's Naomi. Uh, like, and we've been waiting for that, right? That's basically the point right. of the whole story. Um, he also happens to be there because he's chasing her and we get a scene between him and his sister, which we kind of didn't know that we wanted, but we know she needed it because she's like in the throes of this affair and seeing her brother there, like actually lifts her spirits, which again, softens the impact of the affair. Right. And allows her to be honest enough with her husband to confront him. Okay. So there's that. Um, and she's very much a silent suffering type of figure in this movie. So it's like we're, we're ready for her to get some, you know, some to get a, a hug. You know, she needs it. We want her to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, of yeah. course, one of the best pieces, Liam Neeson's kid. We actually meet his love interest and see why he loves her. See their chemistry. It's very cute. And we have Liam Neeson, like, you know, thrilled for his son. And we've long forgotten the fact that he's, he's his dead wife. You know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. so far in the rearview mirror at this point, the film. <laughs> Right. Um, so far, well, it's because his dead wife, literally, in her <laughs> like self eulogy. Uh-huh. I don't know if there's yeah, a yeah, word that's for right. That. They read her eulogy. That's right. It says like if Claudia Schiffer were to come and go to town, right? Which, and of course, she, she gives does. him a hall pass from the grave. Right, right, right. It's like <laughs> willing the future. Like she's foretelling the you know prophecy. And so obviously they're gonna make a joke because they can get Claudia Schiffer. So. And they did, and they have a very a great little meet cute. Uh, and like you know, of course it's a comedy, so we accept that kind of stuff. But we accept it because in Christmas movies we feel that we're entitled to see our wishes come true, right? Mm-hmm. And he's sort of using that aspect of the audience expectations to get away with actually not doing a very complex, like deep contemplation of love on that story because like a deep contemplation on that story would be about the loss they've experienced, the irreplaceability of that. Right. Like, can you get another love? Can you love again? Yes. But can you replace it? No. You know, it's exactly like dark man. What's that? It's exactly what? It's exactly like Darkman, Liam Neeson. I'm saying that they're the same canon. That Liam Neeson in Love Actually is Darkman. I like that. Uh, a wonderful theory that I'm going to just stipulate without comment. You're right. Prove me wrong. Um, Prove me wrong. <laughs> so another thing that he'll do, he being Richard Curtis, is he will he'll cut together contrasting situations to kind of soften the blow of some of our more painful sequences. Right. That- <clears throat> Absolutely right. Yeah. So like one of them is we'll go from Liam Neeson's funeral, right? Which is it's painful. That's a tough bit. He's very choked up and like the eulogy itself is like a little funny but also like man, that's rough, you know? And he carries the coffin out and it's brutal. And then we'll cut to a wedding reception, which is like one of the highest points you can get. And uh we'll cut to somebody who's having a tough time at a wedding reception, so it feels like we're getting like the same emotion, but we're not actually. We're in a very different context, and this person's making jokes to sort of like you know, like cheer up a little bit. So like, mm-hmm. actually, what we've done is contrasted the two, but it feels like they're having the same emotional through line. It's very clever, 
you know? Yeah. And also, do you, I have a question for sure. you. Because Richard Curtis also, one of his first um, rom- rom-coms was Four Weddings and a Funeral. Yes. Do you think Good he's movie. self-conscious about the fact that this movie is just two weddings and a funeral? Wow. You, I don't know if you wrote them down. I don't know what you're doing today, but you're coming with a blast Canada of joy at me, and I'm loving it. Uh, yes. Because usually for the sequel, you want it to be like bigger. It should be five weddings. <laughs> this is not the sequel funerals. to that film, to be clear. Uh, yeah. Oh, you're right. It's Dark Man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm, I'm just enjoying a distraction your bullshit. At this I'm point. enjoying it. Yeah. Uh, another example of a contrasting cut, right? So we cut from Colin Firth. Like just blowing it when he had a chance to talk to his uh, his Portuguese assistant, who you know he loves her, you know, and he's fallen in love with her. He's gone through a hard time. That's a yeah. like a really low beat. How do we fix it? Time to see the music video of Bill Nye's <laughs> ridiculous song, and it's very clearly a Pretty Woman ripoff. Like it's like so yeah. clear, you know. <laughs> I love his brand of. Uh, narcissism and it's cynicism. amazing it's so good like because it's like he does it like it's I've never seen it done before Bill Nye fucking nails yep. it and honestly Richard Curtis nails it because like the con- concept of him as a character is so thorough thoroughly likable mm-hmm. because like he's he's winking at you but he's also self-deprecating constantly that's right yeah and it's, and it's, and it's so it makes it so like I enjoy his like <laughs> It's like musical pirate act. You know what I mean? Like I like I, yeah. I like what he's doing because he knows he's what he's doing. He's just a stinker. And I'm like, okay, good. He's just a stinker. Yeah. Love it. I love it too. Uh so there's some filmmaking tactics that uh that that Richard Curtis employs that are also about trying to maintain the uniformity of experience of emotion. One of them is that uh almost every single scene is shot in the same way. Now, there's of course, there's variety, but there's a basic sort of like layout to how all of the scenes are shot. And it's like this. Um, almost every single one of them ends in sort of like a little hallmark card of this moment. And they're constructed around basically a two per, like a two person medium or a very close single in a kind of mm-hmm. flat space. Right. They shoot yeah. a general flatness like and he'll use some wide angle lenses. But even when he does use wide angle lenses, he'll kind of have a flat backdrop. So we're not getting a sense of depth, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so what he, he's literally creating postcards like he's constantly creating them like he's even dollying looking for them. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And when he does have scenes with depth in them, he'll kind of configure them in a Wes Anderson way for a joke. He does that twice. Right. He does it in the restaurant yeah. where Colin Firth admits that he loves Aurelia and speaks Portuguese, which is very funny. Mm-hmm. And he also does it when Colin Firth sees his family and he bails on them because like the way they're arranged is very funny. And when Hugh Grant meets, uh, I guess I'll call them his in-laws for the first time when he's searching for yeah. Naomi, his assistant, they're arranged yeah, in this very, very comic family. way yeah. that sort of negates the depth of the space, right? So like, Right. It's too narrow for how many It's way are. too narrow, right? So like... <clears throat> He basically eradicates depth as often as he can to give us a kind of, again, a flat postcardy effect that makes all of it's them. Also, it's also how this is kind of weird now that I'm thinking about mm-hmm. it, but like it's also he only does it for like families that have been mentioned are poor. Oh, <laughs> like it's interesting, right? 
Yeah. Like it's it's because like he goes out of his way several times to mention that Naomi is like on the dodgy end That's right. of they a particular do. street. Yep. And uh, you know, obviously Aurelia is uh like working uh she she's has her like cleaning business and she's also holding down multiple jobs. Mm-hmm. She's also a waitress. Mm-hmm. So her Portuguese family uh, is displayed in kind of the same way where it's this narrow tenement kind of entryway, which is, you know, typical of like, I think, British, you know, apartments or like what I imagine in London or whatnot. But like it's swarming with people. And I just think that that's like he's doing that intentionally. Well, and the effect of it is that we don't think about their poverty. Yes. You know, like it acknowledges. They're very happy amongst each other. That's right. They love each other. There's so many of them having a great time. And like they all have such a, it's like a fruitcake of personality in there. You know what I mean? Like they're all having a good time. Like, and not everybody even agrees. This person doesn't agree. Mm -hmm. I do. You know, like that kind of stuff. Right. Like, and it very much mitigates that, you know, especially Naomi is coming from a very different walk of life than Hugh Grant Mm -hmm. is. Like, wildly different mm-hmm. walk of life. A thing that actually should Who's matter the, in the story and, and doesn't. The prime minister, not the minister. <laughs> He's the prime. the prime minister. I would say that he, that Richard Curtis even goes so far as, like, when he has scenes that require movement, which he does sometimes, you'll get mostly horizontal dollies that are that feel invisible. They're just sort of tracking on a 50 somebody until they find their next, like, postcard. Their next two mm-hmm. shot, right? So, like, you do get movement, um, but largely it's movement that's designed to sort of not feel like movement, you know, um, with yeah. some exceptions. But generally, that's how the film gets shot. And again, it creates a kind of uniformity. This stuff really stands out because there are a few key moments where he breaks the pattern, and you see, right. oh, this guy is actually a pretty great filmmaker and can definitely do some visually interesting stuff. Uh, so, this is all being done on purpose. The music video, for instance, has some great, like, you know, insert, like, inserty kinds of uh, funny shots. But right. really, it's the wedding video where you start to see, like, oh, man, this guy can do great stuff with, like, you know, handicam footage. Right. Uh, it's really powerful, right? Like the, the wedding video that we look at with right. Andrew Lincoln and Kira Knightley. Yeah, and it's and because he, he's asking you to do actually a fairly complex thing as an audience member. Mm-hmm. But he's doing it pretty seamlessly, which is yep. think about what's not in frame. Exactly. You know, think about what the the voyeuristic aspect of the cameraman and who's shooting the camera. Mm-hmm. What does that imply about the cameraman? And it becomes pretty obvious. I mean, it's not that I'm not saying the idea isn't, isn't obvious. It's just that that's a complex thing to try to get you to like he stuck the landing. Absolutely. At the moment in the script when you're supposed to know that, he made it so. You do know it. Yeah. And they never say it until say after it. you know it. Way you know, later. Like, way later. Way later. Exactly. So, like, you know, and that tells you. So, this guy can definitely create a lot of complexity with the camera. And, like, I, that's even like an, almost a different cinematic language. It's more of a music video language. Right. And uh, it's great, you know? So, that tells you that. The choices he's making to sort of flatten and homogenize the image across all these stories is intentional. And even this story that includes this really cool visual alteration ends in a postcard moment, which is like a flat 50-52 shot. They're on the street. Mm -hmm. She kisses him after he's confessed that he loves her. And then like uh, all kinds of complications ensue. Nope, we never see him again. 
Yep. That's, that's how that story ends. It's kind of sweeping uh, it under the carpet, right? Oh, well, we're going to get to that because he does that all the time in mm. this film. Right. Um, he also has a pretty rigid and uniform color palette in this one, right? And by so, like, here's how I define it. So, most of the color palette is desaturated to some degree, and it's largely a cool color palette, right? So, you'll like, you'll see a lot of blues and grays, of occasional like muted greens, and then you'll see some purples and like splatters of orange once in a while. But it's a pretty cool color palette on the whole. And then, of course, you'll see some burgundies and some dull pinks that are in the red family to kind of make it not feel like an unreal space. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I've shot things that are like in an unreal colors palette to really make these points more clear. He doesn't want that to happen. He wants it to still feel like life. So he mitigates it with some of these duller red hues, but he has the one Christmas saturated red that he sprinkles uh, everywhere in this film. Yeah. Right. Dark and red. It, it's yeah. It's like, it's not quite fire engine red, but it's like, you know, right between like a deep burgundy and a bright fire engine red. It's right between those two. Right. It's the Christmas red. We've all seen it. It's easily the most saturated color in the film. Like no other color has that kind of saturation. Um, we never get large splashes of it, though. We always it's always used as a kind of like accent color. And that's it's holiday movie stuff. They're that's just right. like constantly in the background. That's There's right. holy and stuff like right. that. And it's used in this film for literally every emotional purpose. Mm. It's used for every single emotional purpose. So like in Alan Rickman's story, it's temptation. We get a, a shot of his assistant in red lingerie. Right. And it's like, Ooh, right. Uh, like that's clearly the purpose of it. In Colin first story, it's about longing, not temptation. It's about like, mm. like needing to, to, to express yourself. Right. Right at the moment when he realizes he should say something to this woman as she's walking away, by the way, in a red sweater, a red car passes right behind him That's in a nice. sea of gray and blue cars. There's one red car, I didn't and it passes that. right good. at that moment. You know? It's, yeah. Yeah, not by accident. It happened on purpose. Um, and in Hugh Grant's story, it's, it's, like, it's the reason you see saturated colors in most movies, which is a celebratory moment. It's, it's like, joy, we got it. We nailed it. It's happening. Like, the thing you want finally happened. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what Natalie well, we've wears. We've been edging you. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, right. that's what romance films are, right? They're yeah. just edging. Yeah, they're edging. For like nine, 95% right. of it. Yes, this is the, to use five. Abe's <laughs> glorious Christmas metaphor, this uh-huh. is the orgasm of the film. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're coming right now. Yeah, that's right. It's, well, that's that's what it is, right? It's very catharsis obvious. catharsis slash cum. Yeah. Uh, a few grand. <laughs> cum tharsis. Thank yeah. you, Abe. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's what it is. It's what she wears when they get together. And she basically stays in red, if I remember correctly, for the rest of the film. Yeah, they're, um, yeah. And the point I'm making here is that when you're doing color like this, what you're saying is all the stories are the same, right? All of the emotions right. are, are uniform. He, uh, he uses them to sort of inhabit various tones of the scene, but he always mm. sort of, I, I'm going to use this term broadly, he kind of whitewashes the overall effect of the scene with the saturated red. You know, it makes right. them homogenous. But it is um, a light motif, right? So it's Absolutely. Like, yeah. Which is uh, a smart tactic for vignette format. Exactly. It's great for an anthology because it marries things together. But like, how do I say it? So like, you ever seen it? I mean, I know you have, but those of it at home, have you ever seen like the Trois Color series, right? Red, blue, and white. Mm-hmm. Those are films that are being made by a director who's using color in a much more intentional way. And they're also 
they also have some anthology elements, you know, and you'll see that there's like that they'll use saturation purely to follow the moment by moment of the story. They're not using uh, hue and saturation in this sort of like the whole movie's red. This the vibe of this movie is red. The whole movie's blue. The vibe of it is blue. No, no, no. They're using the color to specifically say clear emotions, and they withdraw, subtract, or add it when it's needed. That's not what this movie is doing. It's completely different than that. Um, mm-hmm. Another thing that, and I, this one really stood out to me this time. The musical choices of this film mm-hmm. are more for tone than for heightening drama, right? So, like most of the time, when you get score in a movie, the purpose of score is to heighten the drama of the moment that you're having, right? Like, oh my god, is that thing going to get me? Right? You get the the, the screeching or the the strings or whatever or the the clanging sound, whatever the score is, you'll get that when you're afraid the most the monster's going to come out, right? Or like when we really want them to kiss, finally the strings come in and they do, you know? So it's heightening the expectations and like the drama of the moment. That's not how music works in this movie. In this movie, the music comes in to sort of make us sit back from the moment and think about what does it mean, right? Mm. Best example is Liam Neeson's kid running through the airport, okay? This is actually a moment of like, will they, won't they? That's what the scene is. Will they, won't they? Will he see this girl in time and tell her how he feels? Is it going to be okay? Is she going to like him back? We don't know. So the music should be creating a sense of anticipation. That is not what it's doing. Instead, the score is telling us like, ah, isn't it great? There it is, yeah. running after love. There Isn't it is. that what you want? Yeah, That's... the thing happening that you already right. know it's going to be. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's a foregone conclusion. It, it eradicates the drama in favor of the meditation on the moment, right? And this happens a bunch of times. It's never done more clearly than the airport, but a bunch of times the movie refuses to dramatize the moment and instead sort of meditates on the meaning. Um and finally, and this is like I think my favorite piece of this as a director and writer, uh, he uses what I'm going to call sleight of hand to kind of disguise or discard a story beat so you don't think about it, right? He literally just like he takes it away so you don't think the about sweeping it. Sweeping under the rug, yeah. So to speak. One of them is Laura Lenny's story. Okay, her story is really sad really? and heavy. It's a heavy story. Yeah. Like. The illness her brother has is really a bummer. At some point, he like threatens to hit her, and she has to stop him. Like, don't yep. do that. And it's like, oh man, this is brutal, right? And uh, mm-hmm. how does he handle that? We just don't see her again after the hour and fifteen minute mark. Yeah, it's just like that's her situation. That's it. She we don't see her. Tried yep. to date. It was a problem. It's going to be a problem every now and then. But it also, right. you know, you get the sense that she's probably going to persevere. But we She'll be don't okay. really we don't really comment on it as a right. movie. It and we say. don't bring it back in the moment when the other stories are <laughs> starting to work. Boom. Yeah, where you know it at the end it's just like, well, let's just focus on the happy ones. Exactly. So yeah. yeah, so we subtract her from the sum total by not putting her in the film after the hour fifteen mark. Right. Right? Um there's also a bunch of scenes that we don't get that if you wanted to track a story, you would absolutely get even in a right. movie. One of them is we never see Alan Rickman actually do the action of having an affair. He never gives the necklace to the assistant. We don't, they right. don't kiss on camera. They don't have right. sex on camera. We never see them actually be together. Never. Um, right. We don't watch. And like, so, you know, the obvious impact there is that we don't feel the impact of the affair to the degree that we should. 
Um, right. We don't watch the manager and Bill Nye hang out after he shows up at his house because that hangout would actually be sad. Is embracing is embracing all the stuff that he said before, which is you like I'd rather go. He, the whole movie he's been saying I'd rather get, like I'm gonna go party with like go to the biggest parties and you know fuck everybody. Right. And then right. he's like, what? I, or I can do the sad like thing that like I probably get drunk deserve, alone. Yeah. Which is get drunk with my chubby manager alone. And then when he goes and makes that choice, it's like I'm doing it because I love you. Because I love you. Right. Yeah. But and it's that's like, sweet. it wouldn't be happy to it wouldn't be fun to watch. You don't not want to watch it. Like so like seeing their relationship play out is unsatisfying. Their relationship is only satisfying as a sentiment. So that's all we get of it. Right. You know, that's that's literally all we get of it. Um this is like a little rough, but I but honestly I really believe it would be in a movie if you wanted to think about what does love mean. You don't get a single moment of political aftermath for anything the prime minister does. Like, right. like he stands up to the president and like says, we're not in a good relationship anymore. A massive decision, uh, like politically and like globally. Right. right. And like, that's a celebrate moment and we don't see the president again. Right. right. And perhaps more crucially, we never get a single person's reaction to him making out with his former assistant, uh, or to her, like, like literally sprinting and jumping on him at the airport at the end, right? And I also, what I caught or what I liked is that so Hugh Grant and Emma Thompson are uh, brother sister, brother sister, right? right? So in that interaction where they have at the play right before the play, uh, she drops the line, like, which is a hey, fucked up for her to do, but she's in pain. She like mentions like, oh, you'd be to Naomi, uh, you know, the prime minister's, you know, new squeeze, love interest. Yeah, uh, is like, oh, if you were tw- if he was twenty years younger, you'd just be uh, just his just type. his type. Twenty years yeah. ago, you'd be just his type. And it's like, oh fuck, <laughs> laying down like missiles flying from yep. Emma Thompson. But it, the reason though is there's a sneaky thing of like he's done this a lot. It's implied. And now it puts yes. into context his, because you at the beginning of the movie, because everything's so light, uh, his character's shown of like, well, that's inconvenient is one of the lines that he says, meaning like, oh, I'm developing a crush for, with uh, some of the, like with someone I work with um, and have power over. And it's like, okay, that's cute because the way it was framed or a way that I expected it at the initial, uh, initially was like, this is not a a thing that happens all the time to him. Right. It's it's because he just had a great flirtatious moment. No, the reality is he's mad fucking people he's working with all the time. I mean, of course, Uh, of course he, he he acts like that. Right. Like he, like he doesn't seem like he's ever worried about, how it would seem to other people that he got involved with his with his servant? I mean, is she basically a servant? Well, I mean, or whatever, yeah. the, whatever Her the job is, is essentially to bring him uh, personal snacks. assistance. Yeah, yeah, personal but assistance. But you don't see her on a phone or anything. She's no. only ever because it's we only see these people for ten minutes. Over That's the right, right, right. I, you don't get into a deep dive on what her job is. I agree. Right. So, like, and this is also a little bit cruel, but again, I think it matters because the movie brings it up. We right. don't get the we don't deal with the aftermath of her self image issues. Like she yeah. thinks that she's fat, and she's oh, constantly right. being. They're constantly remarking on the fact that she's overweight, and it's not. It's not a nobody's arguing with that. Everybody seems to think 
Yeah. Like she has a weight problem. And so imagine then that the prime minister gets in a relationship with his pri- with his with his assistant who has a weight problem according to the belief of this country and like we never see anybody's reaction to that. Right. You know what I mean? Fucking it's like movies, man. They really duck that. Like they duck it really hard, and you yeah. don't think about it because it's an anthology, you know. Because for the most part, a lot of these dramas are indis- are dispensable because they're just like right. the movie just goes like, ah, that, that's life. That's People right. have situations, and that's all. Well, and that's I the tactic. I mean, that's yeah, really because the it's talking here. about something else. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's about the sum of the parts. Um, just a couple other scenes that feel like they should have been in a movie if you really wanted to contemplate the meaning of it. Uh, mm. Colin Firth's affair. It feels like we would have seen her again, like it would, we would have, like we've seen his ex-wife again. Like, oh right, like that. That's a classic movie structure thing. Yeah, it was almost like she's only there for one. She was only in one scene. So yes. for him to go, I love you, and it's almost like the whole vignette works if she didn't even exist. You know? I mean, like, yeah, he could have just been recently divorced. We never saw why, but I think the film wanted us to feel sorry for they him. Want, they want because right. he's so in love with her. They right, right, right. To, of course, they want, you to fall, you know. want to feel the fall. But like, but so to use a film to, that contrasts this, the movie Her. So like that movie starts with this guy is really torn up about a breakup. And we absolutely see the impact of that breakup on him in the beginning of the film and then through having to go see her again. You know? Yeah. And and like I that's just a normal thing in a film. It's weird that it's By not the in this way, one. they've known each other for two weeks when he marries her. <laughs> right. Because they actually say four weeks. Right, right. And they give us two a of those weeks. Two of those weeks, he's fucking learning Portuguese. He's learning Portu- Portuguese, which we so get. he's only actually been in like rooms with her for two weeks. Yeah, not very long. Like, I'm gonna marry you, but he is a, like, he right. is a sexy ass writer though. He uh, is, yeah. And finally, and I think most importantly, Abe and I were talking about this before we even started the podcast. Right. So like, Karen Knightley and Andrew Lincoln's relationship, uh, we definitely go out on a high note in the sense that they've finally been honest, right? But like. No good could come from her deciding to kiss him out of what seems like charity or what seems like trying to reciprocate that she appreciates his feelings or whatever. Nothing good would have come from that. Like only heartache and pain would have come from whatever, like the very next minute of their life. Right. Yeah. And not only that, like the extension of what's going to happen with uh, Chihuatel, a geophore, like he's just in the room there, not knowing that uh, his his new wife and uh, best friend kind of want to fuck. There might be something there. Yeah, he doesn't even suspect it because Andrew Lincoln's been like whole like white knuckling it so hard to yeah. not admit his feelings for her. You know. Yeah. Although at at the wedding, uh, Laura Linney just knocks it out of the park and just like swishes it out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Uh, yeah. So there's there are indicators but like not for him he's maybe he's woefully ignorant and it's like a little bit his fault doesn't want to see matter right doesn't matter they're still doing some big steps they're not he like andrew lincoln is not not opening the door right right he's he's not closing he has not wrapped up the problem here He's created no, a problem here. He's created a problem. Yeah, he's and Pandora's box. Is this. being very kind and probably a little uh, self indulgent herself. Flattered. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. frankly, like, sh- 
I mean, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know the nature of their relationship. Maybe they're polyamorous. I don't know. But it just doesn't you get seem the feel. Like it doesn't yeah. seem like that's the type of movie, right? And it's like, uh, it's she really is just like, ah, uh, the kiss at the end is a little bit more than just like, ah, uh, cute, good, good. All right, well, we can't ever mention this again, right? And it's more than that. And then Andrew Lincoln kind of just says, enough, enough now. <laughs> As he walks away, and that's like, I don't know, that's even worse because yeah. now, now he's now like the taking door is open. Now yeah. that he's opened the door, everyone knows what the situation is, and he feels self like fulfilled. He has essentially been selfish, and he's looked at it as a win, like a moral win. And I think that that's fucked up. Yeah, yeah, it's muddy. It's it's not clear. It definitely would only get worse. Uh, you, there's a lot of ways to interpret what he's trying to say and what she's trying to say with that last moment. Like, I, like, I don't think there's like a clear, it means this, like you can take different things from it, but none of them would result in less conflict. Like it would only, it would only descend into somebody's not in this trio anymore. Like that's, that's where this is This is the kind of movie that I feel like you can just throw your hands up and go like, yeah, that's life. That's love. Well, that's what it wants you to do. Exactly. Exactly. That's what it wants wants you to to say. Here's the good. Here's the bad. And it's like the most general message of all time. So like, you know, I mean, and of course, like we've made a living at at Cracked of pointing out like implications of things. But like the point I'm really trying to make here is less about the implications of the scene and why they're silly but more about the director chose not to continue the story at these key moments because For a reason. Yeah. because to do that would ruin the meditation that he's trying to yeah. do. Um, yeah, very much so. And like, the last sleight of hand, and I find it incredible uh, as a comedy director myself, is pure distraction. Like, literal pure distraction. Just like, shake keys the, exactly. at the baby. <laughs> so like, like, the story, Liam Neeson's story in general is incredible. And by that I mean mm. the fact that he managed he the director managed to completely dispose of his the deceased wife with like the son falling in love is amazing because you you literally forget that by the end of the film almost. Yeah, he pulled grief out of the car as if it were a battery. Tossed it right <laughs> out. Like, just threw right, it right out. Put and this like, new thing in. We just don't have enough time to object to that. In a lot of movies that would like not work. But it worked right. okay here. And then my favorite of the whole thing, like my favorite decision is Mr. Bean. Okay, Mr. Oh, yeah. Bean. First of all, I love Mr. Bean. Like, I don't want to watch his stuff. <laughs> Rowan Atkinson. Yeah. I love him. You know what I mean? I love him. I think he's uh, such a... I mean, he's killing it. He's doing his oh, thing. Oh, he's doing, he's doing a great version of his thing, too. Being around. Like, his, <laughs> his thing is extremely silly. Like, you know, like Jim Carrey level silly, right? It's a little more focused here, but it's still he's still Mr. Bean here. Like he's definitely still like a magic little imp that shows up just to make things uncomfortable at Ruin the right time. Ruin some other people's days. Right. I also love that they they uh they focus his comedic uh like what his function is comedically yep. into one thought, which yep. is that he expands time. That's right. He just is <laughs> That's right. He's just a guy who expands who's time. To, yep. All he does is he just make makes people take have longer. to wait. Yep. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, yeah, he has a specific function in the script. Now right. You could do that in so many places in this story, but they did it in the one story that was exquisitely painful, and that is the mm-hmm. affair, right? They, they, and, yeah. He shows up for that part of it, and it's the worst part of the affair when Alan Rickman is beginning to deceive his wife. 
It's right? the closest we get to action. It's and it's and, the closest we yeah. get to an actual heart wrenching thing, and that is the moment where we get silly, absurdly mm-hmm. silly, right? Like, uh, right. like the stuff he's doing with the branches and stuff is unbelievable, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like Pink Panther shit, yeah. right? And so, like, you just you no longer think about what he's doing to his wife. Instead, you're thinking like, how long is this bit gonna go on for? Because it's very funny, but also like, is is he gonna get caught? Those are the only questions. You're not mm-hmm. thinking. You're no longer meditating. The meditating is actually shrunk into pure tension and and comedy, pure comic mm-hmm. tension. You know, Just and so shake the keys at the baby. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So we don't meditate in a movie that's asking us to meditate all the time, right? Um, he also was like, I just thought used well in the airport because it was fun. Again, sort of used in the same way the music because they used. needed to build times to because you needed to feel that the kid wasn't going to make it. And right, right. They need to throw in a reason how he can get kind past of. The but I also guards, think that you so never think the kid's not going to make it. I think the music yeah, that's tells true. That. I think yeah. that he's there first of all to make him not just a one note thing, but also he's there to sort of structurally reinforce the thing the music is doing, which is a little Christmas miracle is happening right now. Right, you yeah. know he's a little. He is a literal he, Christmas miracle. I think right? he's God. Yeah, in a little bit. This movie, uh, yeah, a little it's bit. Canon. Yeah, this is Dark Man Canon and Rowan Atkinson. <laughs> All right, is God. <laughs> Dark Man bit. Okay. So, uh, in summary, uh, I think you do have to hand it to this guy. He he has cleverly crafted as a writer and director uh, a film that is emotionally effective with a, a mountain of problems. Like there's so many things that could have ruined it or hit a wrong note that would have undercut the the buoyancy and the feeling of poignancy that he doesn't actually achieve, right? Like, and I think there there is a skill to crafting an emotionally rewarding film like this that's still schmaltzy, you know. Like mm-hmm. it takes a lot of balance and it takes a lot of restraint, um, and it, it takes an understanding of like really knowing the whole, how to stay focused on the whole movie and not get too invested in the moments themselves which is the opposite of how most movies are made most movies are about trying to get us to get focused around the moments so that the whole feels like we had a big experience like a ride i mean it's uh a lot of movies use that kind of Uh, uh, yes of course distraction and you know these kinds of tactics are in the almost every movie right Distraction is, yeah, especially in a comedy film. I feel like that's a tactic. Especially comedy. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so right, he didn't invent anything here, but he, but he's definitely but, using it very skillfully. Um, for sure. Especially in a vignette form where there's a lot of distraction already infused in just the idea of when you cut to the next scene, when you do your meanwhile back at the ranch, mm-hmm. it's like there's 85 ranches and you're like, oh, I got to keep them. I forgot that, that this was an arc even. You know, <laughs> so like, and a lot of movies do. They just yeah, kinda, you know, so uh, it's kind of just like a, a barrage of thought, you know? Exactly. So, like, I even though this is a little counterintuitive, I think it actually does take a great director to make a film feel uniform in tone and visual style over the course of an anthology. Like, that's mm-hmm. actually not as easy to do as you'd think, because you're in a lot yeah. of places with a lot of people uh, and a lot of different tones of acting and story. And he still made it feel like one cohesive piece, and that's hard. And uh, honestly, if you're willing to accept the film on its own terms, it's a pretty great Christmas movie. It still kind of works. As Christmas goes, yeah, yeah. it still kind of works. So those of you who are looking for a great holiday film or a Christmas film, I can still recommend it. Just don't go in blind. 
you can't go to the Glendora AMC though. The, the showing today. <laughs> That's where we'll finished be. at three p.m. <laughs> and it's now three forty thirty seven. Ah, so shit! I'm sorry. We'll have to. Yeah. We'll have to we'll find have to our own journey. Love there. actually. Yeah. No. But uh, yes. Very. Yes. Very good. Oh, I, thank you. I'm big fan. I'm a big fan of how you splayed this out. Just because it's like it's so true that in just a very functionally. Everything's like rom-com more than like even horror or sci-fi or other genres. Functionally, the beats are laid out in front of you. And it's almost like a lot of the rom-coms that are our favorites. And, you know, we talked about when Harry met Sally and stuff. Um, Man, oh, man. When they break that format, they really have to stand alone on the merit of what they're saying. Yep. And that's uh, right. And this guy found a way to essentially make a very successful career out of saying, uh, you know, a very expansive kind of statement about love, a very, you know, like classically what I, I think would be. A, I mean, I think it's pretty generic. It's, but it's like, almost an old taste. Hollywood sentiment. It's uh, like an old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's an old traditional kind of like rehashing modernized. Um, uh, and a lot of people did this with their career. Uh I would say that Sorkin did a lot of that. He well, he's also very sentimental, man. Mm-hmm. Like he's yeah, one exactly. of the most sentimental. Like we don't give enough. We don't, people don't point that out enough. Like that guy, The West Wing. Now, right. <laughs> like at this vantage it's point in history, outrageous. looks like pure <laughs> schmaltz, right? Yeah, it's 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 soap opera fiction, right? At that point. I mean, and we used to think like, man, that's what it should be. That's that's right. like, that's the polis, my dude. You know, like right? Uh, and yeah. no, it isn't. <laughs> But I like your, like, that's, to me, that's, even this conversation is a little bit of a distraction because your inspection into, oh, these are actually discreetly done in a certain method, and also there's tactics that he uses that he employs along the way to manufacture that is something that can never be uh, more stated. It's uh, it's just that that's the craft. Literally, that's the craft. Right. And, uh, and a yeah. lot of it's probably, I mean, more than we'd like to think, probably was done in editing. You know, because like, yeah, certainly when you're a writer director, you're planning the structure for the whole thing. Right. But inevitably, mm-hmm. a film kind of takes on uh, a, like a different tone and face in the editing bay because it's reality now. Like you're no longer you're no longer looking forward to the film you will make. You've made a film now. And now you're finding it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so, like some a lot of this stuff, I think, even if it was written this way, he probably figured out how to successfully deploy it in post, you know, because um, I think yeah. that's how that's the place where a lot of these anthology movies have to really rubber re- meets the road, you know, like right. the idea works or it doesn't, and then you have to make it work. So he's a pretty good editor, you mm-hmm. know, like I'm not saying he physically edited, but like he's he's pretty good with like making the movie feel smooth and thought out and well structured. And maybe it's because right. he shot it perfectly, but that would be surprising. I would say. Yeah. No, yeah. uh, absolutely. Yes, my man. Well, we've had a good time. Fucking well done. Uh, We're talking about Christmas films and it's that's like, right. it's holiday season, mm-hmm. you know, it is. Yeah. So right. I want to extend that, I guess, you know, love actually. Love. To the, everybody uh oh, i thought it was coming to me but but yeah to everyone sure to you uh Thank but you, also Abe. the listeners if they you know if the the if it is the season that's right uh 
you know, <laughs> if you whatever. I don't know. celebrate emotions and connections, I bequeath you, that to you. <laughs> I, I, I allow it. I allow it. Uh, I accept I, your love is what I'm getting at. Yeah, if you man, have love to I give know, me, man. I accept it. It is the season. It's, uh, yeah, so enjoy that. Uh, <laughs> and that, I guess, break from uh, Director Peace Theater because you won't get another one for a few weeks. Yeah, we'll see you in the new year. With uh, new ideas, new films, same old mm-hmm. craft. I also picked a winter movie. I like I'm it. I'm not going to tell you which it is. But yet. it's still appropriate at the time we're going to hear it, I'd say. Yes. Yeah. You know. Uh, well, cool, man. Yeah. Love talking movies. Always a pleasure. I love hearing your theories. Thank you so much. Uh, much love to everybody. Uh, if you're hearing this for the first time and have never, ever subscribed to patreon.com forward slash smallbeans, Hey, give us a shot, man. We got so much more good stuff. This isn't even our best one. Not even our best. We have, there's better <laughs> ones even, if you can believe that. Uh, come check us out. We love making director piece, but we make so many other podcasts uh, of, with so many configurations. An anthology of pals, if you will. Uh, come join the Christmas cheer over there. Toss us a buck or two if you'd like. And uh, we sure be happy to have it. Yeah. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time. This has been a Small Beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!